Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, Paul told us that, or what the meaning of life is in chapter 1, verse 21, when he said that for him to live is Christ and to die is gain, right? He made a very important distinction that informs how we're meant to take and apply his words in these verses, 27 through 30, tonight. Paul did not say that for him to live was serving Christ, and therefore to die is gain. It wouldn't be gain if that was life. If our life is serving Christ, inadvertently maybe the center of our lives becomes our own service of Him, which ends up ironically turning us in on ourselves and against others, eventually making us bitter at our brothers and sisters and even probably Christ Himself. It kills unity if we make ourselves central and prevents us from being fruitful. For Christ's sake. Think about those. Just think about those you've known in your life or have met that get to a point where whether for um, physical or providential reasons, they cannot serve Christ anymore as they had before. And I'm not talking about everybody in that position. I'm talking about people that you've met that are like this. They can't do the things for Christ that they used to do. And if a person's life was serving Christ, and not Christ, but serving Christ then when they can't do that anymore, they don't know how to live. They feel worthless. They get angry and bitter and frustrated and depressed because they can no longer do what they were living for. Right? Paul needs the eyes of the Philippians off of themselves because there is a gospel to be proclaimed. What do Christians in Philippi in the first century have in common with Christians in the 21st century? In Moundsville. Dennis Johnson writes that both belong to marginalized minorities in societies driven by values that contradict our deepest commitments as followers of Jesus. The followers of Jesus in societies increasingly dominated by Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, and Marxism, which is the biggest danger threatening our own society in America today. Marxism, cultural Marxism, and general Marxism. Followers of Jesus in societies like this will experience social rejection, political oppression, economic hardship, and eventually, and all around the world as we speak, violent persecution. Paul is writing this letter to citizens of the Roman Empire, enveloped in the culture that goes with that, to keep them from defecting, to keep them from getting distracted in light of the fact that they will suffer for the sake of the gospel, at least in as much as they are engaged in the conflict to proclaim the gospel. The pressure we are facing and will face not only calls for humility, since our unity is so crucial to our mission, but also for courage, since Christ for us in the gospel must be proclaimed. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would give me the grace tonight to speak your word in truth. Help me speak in a way that all might understand. Father, help us to hear what you are saying to us in this passage. Let us hear what the law requires of us. Let us hear what Christ has done for us. And let us take heart that we belong to you. And we 
we ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Picking it up in verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. So we've come to the point in the letter now where Paul is about to call these Philippian Christians to arms, so to speak. To do that, he draws on two images that would have been meaningful to everybody in Philippi. Citizen and soldier. You saw that word again that Paul keeps using in this letter, whether. See it again here in verse 27. Paul's life is characterized by uncertainty for the here and now. But he's made it clear in that uncertainty that he rejoices in what is happening to him. Since no matter how it goes, it is going to serve to advance the gospel. He knows the pros and the cons of the legal decision that's about to be made in his appeal to Caesar. And he's modeled for them how they should react in their suffering. What happens to Paul, whether he returns to see their faith in action or stays put and can only hear reports from time to time, or even if he dies at the hands of Rome, their focus in Philippi must not be on their citizenship as Romans, but on their role as citizens and soldiers of another city. A city far north, if you will, of Rome and of Philippi. He'll get into that later in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, very specifically. But behind the English translation of that phrase, or what we see in English, let your conduct be worthy, is really one Greek verb that has the word citizen at its core. The Greek word for city, which is what citizens are a part of, of course, is polis, from which we get our word politics. Here in this letter to the Philippians, and only here, in Philippians, only here in all of Paul's writings, Paul changes the metaphor he usually uses to describe the pattern of behavior we live by as Christians. He usually calls this walk, our walk, and walking worthy and all this. For the only time in his letters, he replaces that with this verb, polytuomai, which means to maintain a standard of conduct befitting a citizen. To behave in a way that enhances the reputation of one city. What city? Philippi was a military town. If you remember when we first started this letter a couple weeks ago, current and retired soldiers and their families were a major part of the population here. Roman patriotism, Roman service, these were cultural standards in Philippi that you had to meet. If you weren't a patriot and didn't, Worship the military, you didn't fit in. If you said the word citizen in Philippi, the people stood up very straight with pride, since that's what they were. That's right, we're citizens of Rome, of the Roman Empire. If you said soldier, they stood a little taller still in honor of those that had brought victory to their beloved Rome. But Paul is saying, Paul is picking up on that ideal of how they might feel about Rome and their citizenship in Philippi as part of the empire. And he says to them, listen, I want you to be a good citizen of heaven here on the earth. That's what I want your conduct to be worthy of. That city. 
that citizenship that you have. And I want you to remember that we're at war, soldier. Act accordingly. Right? He knows that some of them feel great patriotic pride in their status as Roman citizens in Philippi. And Paul knows that they know their behavior as citizens of Philippi brings credibility or dishonor not only to Philippi, where they actually live every day, but also to faraway Rome, where their emperor reigns. Right? Their daily identity is, is shaped very specifically by the glory of Rome. As Paul is telling them they have a much greater connection with an infinitely more glorious city than Rome and an immeasurably more glorious emperor than Caesar. And so their conduct better show that. What kind of conduct could actually be worthy of so high a calling as the gospel of Jesus Christ? Soldiers know better than anybody else that unity and unwavering courage, unity and unwavering courage are absolutely crucial to securing victory in a war. So the answer is to what kind of conduct is worthy of the gospel. What does he want us to live like when he says that is, is precisely what's given in the following verses. Think of Paul's prison cell then as like home base in the war for the gospel in Philippi. When he gets reports from the front, he wants to hear first about their unity. In verse 27, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And second, in verse 28, that they are not in any way terrified by their adversaries. So first of all, Paul is adamant about their need for unity. He hammers it home here with these descriptors in verse 27. Standing fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the sake of the gospel. The spirit Paul speaks of here should probably be capitalized so that we understand the spirit in which we're all to stand fast objectively as the Holy Spirit, who is the creator and preserver of our oneness in soul with one another. Through his sealing power, his adopting power, he has made us one. Right? Standing in the spirit, then, in him means not standing primarily for ourselves, but for one another. The Holy Spirit of God is working to conform us all to the same image. The same exact image. The image of Christ. So He's daily subduing our flesh's desire for independence and individualism. The self in us who fights to get our own way, wants to get our own way, must die for the sake of the gospel. The demand that my preferences and needs and desires be met. Why is that such a problem? If we had to pinpoint it. You're just a preacher just teeing off on people. It's so important. This, this demand that we have to, to call it out. The demand that our preferences and needs and desires be met. You know why it's such a problem, the Bible says? Because it gets in the way of our calling. As citizens and soldiers of heaven on the earth. It's not neutral. It's not okay. It's not just, well, that's a part of being a church. Right. And it needs to die, not be coddled and preserved and fed and fueled. It needs to die. 
Tom Rainer says, you know a church is dying when the preferences of the members are more important than the call of the gospel. He's right. Self-seeking agendas that have nothing to do with what Christ has actually called us to do in the gospel get in the way of the gospel because they destroy unity. That's what's at stake when we fight and bicker amongst one another. I didn't say that. The Bible literally teaches that. When Paul says he wants us to be striving together or side by side for the sake of the gospel, the faith of the gospel, the image is coming from the battlefield and an advancing line of Roman legionnaires, right? They're long shields forming this, you've seen it in movies and on mock-ups and things, forming this kind of seamless wall of protection or against the enemy's spears or the enemy's cavalry or archers. So the, the shields are around them, then they're on top. They're held together a cover for arrows raining down on them from above. Now, just you, you've seen that in movies, you know? You've seen pictures of it maybe in history books, things like that. If the soldiers underneath and behind those shields start bickering, get off my foot. Why are you wearing those shoes? They start bickering. You think nobody would ever fight over something so cheap in the middle of a battle. Okay. If the soldiers underneath and behind those shields start bickering while they're being attacked, how long do you think those shields will stay up? How long will they hold? The issue isn't necessarily, this is where it gets, it gets, it gets lost. It's, it's not that each one of our preferences and desires or traditions that we're willing to fight for or that we want to keep going in, in, no matter what the cost to the larger church is, it's not that they're all bad. That's not what Paul is saying or I am saying or anyone is saying. It's not that they're, that your preferences are bad and my preferences are good or my preferences are bad and your preferences are good or however you want to divide it. That's not the issue at all. It's that insisting on our own way as a general principle, no matter who's right or wrong, no matter who has the majority or not, insisting on our own way makes unity impossible. And if we don't have unity, we will get crushed by our adversaries. Without a unity this tight, the image he has that he's painting, without a unity that strategically, deliberately sound, a church is impotent in the war for souls on earth. Impotent. Now, of course, we can't let the opposition divide us, right? That goes without saying, but Paul's point here is about something much more deadly. Don't be divided from within either. He's much more concerned about that. We'll see how he zeroes in on that in 2, 1 through 4 next week, God willing. But just for now, skip up real quick to chapter 2, verse 3 here. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. So it's here in verse 127 that the initial point is made. Apparently, only self-denying humility will be able to maintain the rock-solid unity 
that God creates among His people by His Spirit. Remember, that's how Paul talks in Ephesians. You are called to maintain the unity of the Spirit, capital S, in the bond of peace. There is no way to simultaneously maintain this unity and serve ourselves. Christians should be willing to stand fast and strive together, strive side by side for one thing and one thing only. The faith of the Gospel in verse 27. That people might receive Christ. For the sake of that, we must be so tightly bound together that nothing, nothing, not one arrow of the enemy can get in and hurt us. We may differ over all kinds of things as brothers and sisters in Christ. We might differ over what kind of music we do together as a church. We might differ over what activities we do. We might differ over our views of the end times and other secondary issues. We may differ over what to do with the building, right? But we better be willing to set all of it aside in any given moment Anything, anything that would threaten or damage our unity. Why? Because people need Christ. That's why. The faith of the gospel. And if we're fighting and bickering in here, we aren't telling it out there. Nor are we to each other. And for this kind of unity, Paul is going to make clear, we have to die to ourselves. We have to let things go or we'll have no witness. And beloved, if a church has no witness, it's not a church. We don't get to decide whether or not we're a good church. The Lord of the church gets to decide whether or not we're a good church. The one that walks among the lampstands, remember him? He's decided. He's weighing hearts and minds. Paul is not calling for unity at the expense of truth. No, not that kind of unity. That, that's, that's not unity at all. There's nothing holding that together. That's jelly. Doctrine divides. And true doctrine really divides. But it's not true doctrine that Paul is telling us has to go for the sake of genuine unity. It is the self that will have to go if we're to have genuine unity. Hear this sentence. Please, I'm asking you, alright? It is Christ or chaos in the church. Period. It's Christ or it's chaos. And we are not only commanded to have unity, beloved, we need unity. Desperately. Look at the first part of verse 28. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries. So not only are there adversaries out there against us, they can be terrified. We normally reserve that word for genuinely terrifying things. Not just scary, terrifying. Like spiders. 
No, I, I can't get a laugh out of you guys anymore for nothing. Used to laugh at everything I said. What did I do? I make a joke now. Goodness sakes. Oh, well, that's now see, that makes sense. That's smart. They're horrible animals. Why in the world? I don't know. People say, well, they eat other bugs. I don't care, man. Give me the other bugs. I hate spiders. I'm off track. Listen, Paul had the credibility. I, I don't have this credibility. I have to preach this that's on the page. I don't have this, right? Paul has the credibility to tell believers they should stand fast and not be afraid. He can say that. He's sitting in prison as he writes this. Remember, most of the skin on his back is gone precisely because he stood fast. Paul isn't just a good citizen of heaven. Paul is a veteran soldier in the war for people's souls with the scars to prove it. And and a, a hard reality to accept is this. The more devoted we are to the gospel, the more that Christ is our priority at the expense of everything else, both as individuals and as a church, listen, the more we will suffer at the hands of our adversaries. Satan isn't really interested in stopping praise and worship concerts, right? He's deeply interested in keeping us at each other's throats so that we lose our witness. If, if, only, if, if only we, all of us, could understand what's going on when we're divided, when we're at odds with each other, or at cold shoulders with each other, or whatever you want to call it, if we only step back and understand what is happening, and the cost of what is happening as the seconds of time tick by and cannot be gotten back. That is why Paul wants to hear when he hears about them that they're united in this conflict to the extent that social, political, and individual agendas are gone. Listen, when we receive Christ, He purchases us, right? He's purchased us through His blood, we no longer own ourselves. You are not your own, Paul says. We were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God, not you, in your body. Now, we are told by our Lord, listen, you can have one conflict in your life. One. Paul's conflict. It was Jesus' conflict. Right? Not everything is worth fighting for. Not everything can be changed. Very little can be changed by fighting for. You think that generation of men, I don't know if they exist anymore. I don't. They got off those boats in Normandy and stormed that beach. Do you think they knew this is what it was going to look like? 60, 70 years later in America? One conflict, he says. It's the same conflict the church has and always will have in this world. You're allowed to have one. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. So enough of all the other conflicts. Enough. Enough. Nothing else. What place do our own personal sacred cows have in the church of Jesus Christ? 
right? How, how are they worth it? How are they worth it? It's Christ or chaos in the church. The need is too real. The sin is too strong. The way is too dark. And the people are too many. So enough of all the other nonsense. Just Christ. Just the gospel. Because here's the thing. To the world in verse 28, to the world, when we are unbreakably united for the sake of the gospel, with all our different opinions and traditions and preferences, right? We all have them. I have mine. Right? Of course I do. We all have ours. When with all those that normally split people apart and make enemies out of them, when all, when, when all of that is given away and dies in the light of the glory of Christ so that a people with all those differences are unbreakably united for the sake of the gospel and their strength in numbers so they're unafraid of their adversaries' attempts to crush them. We don't become arrogant or smug. We're, we're confident in Christ with our hearts actually broken for our adversaries because they don't believe the gospel. When the world sees that, and only that, according to Scripture, it is a proof of perdition to them. To them. And of salvation, and that from God, to us. How does that work? When we testify to the worth of the gospel we proclaim, by being so tightly woven around it that we can't be broken or split apart, it reminds the world that it's true and worthwhile and that they must give an account to our God. The world is so arrogant and evil and so belligerent against Christ. It has something to do with the fact that we couldn't get united over hardly anything if we tried. Yes, it will make them more angry if we're like this. But God is pleased to use it to bring many more into His kingdom. And the closer God pulls us together, the more confident He makes us in the worth and value of His Son, the more certain we become of our salvation, since it is God who began but will also complete the work in us. Do you know what that means? Do you know why, beloved, in this text there is such a lack of unity? Because there is such a lack of assurance. If we don't have assurance, we can't have unity. Okay, personal moment, alright? That's how I think as a preacher. Okay? Why do you say the same things all the time? Because without assurance, there's nothing else. Nothing else. Not even unity. When Christ and who He is and what He has done isn't big in the church, there's no unity. When there's not a big, glorious Christ shining light on all the deep and dark places in us, there's no unity. 
Because there's no Jesus making everything that isn't Jesus look like what it is. There's just us. We won't have assurance either if we don't have unity. Right? Do, do we see how everything the church is called to do and be depends on the value and the centrality of the gospel in our midst? To the degree that we value the gospel, all these other things will either fall into place or will never fall into place. In fact, Paul tells us flat out why courageously suffering as one for the gospel will actually make us stronger in verses 29 and 30. For to you it has been granted. So here's why our unity, our courage through Christ is a proof of perdition to them and of salvation to us that it comes from God. Here's why. It's been granted on behalf of Christ to you. Not only to believe in Him, that comes through grace, but also to suffer for His sake having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. That's an amazing passage. We need to be aware of the fact that not having to suffer for the gospel is not a blessing. It's a liability. Why? Well, because it's been granted to us to suffer for the gospel. That was a gift God gave to us. The gospel is meant, it's designed, it's crafted to advance in the midst and in spite of adversity. Not in ease and with the support of worldly authorities. When we lean into and become dependent upon what the powers of man grant us, we cut the power of the gospel off at the knees. And the American church, be mad at me. It leans into the government for everything. Support us, support us, support us. Let us say what we want to say. Let us do what we want to do. It just leans into it. And if we don't have it, we freak out. The gospel looks like the gospel of Christ because it thrives in opposition from worldly powers, not by their approval. What would be the big deal out of it if it thrives in approval like everything else does why do all these insane Marxist ideologies flourish and grow right now in culture because they have the support of the government and the media and so you have people honestly thinking and questioning things like biological sex right because that ideology has the support of worldly governments and worldly authorities and the media machines they control. We have to quit trying to co-opt the government and the laws of the land for the task of the church. When the church has the approval of worldly powers, it looks like one of them. I'm not a masochist. I don't really want to suffer. I'm not going to go out and try to make it happen. The Bible says you don't have to. You proclaim the gospel with fidelity to the word and integrity to the word, and you'll suffer for it. And God has granted it to us. 
how did we ever get so backwards that we call it His blessing when we're not receiving one of His gifts willingly? How did we get there? Suffering for the Gospel is something God has granted to His church in every age since the New Testament was written. The church suffering is not pushed out into the tribulation in the Bible. It's not. It's a gift of His grace to us. He wills it for us. He's planned it for us. The support of worldly authorities may end up being a curse then, not a blessing. If God has granted suffering, that is, given it as a gift of His grace to His people, and they're not suffering, why not? Is it automatically that they're sinning and are compromised? No. But if He's granted it to us to suffer and we're not suffering, we need to ask some questions. Right? After all, every good and perfect gift is what comes down from above. Why would we not want this gift? This granting of God's grace for ourselves. Why would we not want this gift could probably be answered if we were honest with another question. What do we love the most? What do we prioritize the most? The answer is also the explanation for why we cannot stand fast in one spirit with one mind and strive together for the faith of the gospel. The answer is love of self and love of comfort. And that may sound very reductionistic, but that's what it is. We know that from what Paul says in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2 and the example of Christ that he gives us in the verses following that. They're very specific. There's a lot you can say about Jesus and what he was like and what he did. Paul gets very specific in chapter 2. Suffering is a gift to the church. It purifies us. Right? cleanses out the carnality and self-absorption that are killing us in every church. You're not going to come to church. You're not going to show up, let alone fight over some minority issue if you might be killed for showing up. So that's one of the ways it's a gift of God's grace to us. It purifies us and gets us all on the same page so that we're doing what He actually called us to do, not doing what we would like to do for Him and hope He will bless it and make everybody else put up with it too because that's what we want. A suffering church rallied inseparably around one cause tends to weed out the self-seeking agendas that tear groups apart and keep them from unity. God wants us unified. He is working to accomplish His purpose in us, which is to make us stop looking like ourselves and looking like Christ. So He's going to do whatever it takes, whatever it takes, to get us all on the same page. It has been granted to us to suffer. And sometimes the suffering will come from without. Sometimes we'll suffer within. Because the, what's being killed is the me that wants to win. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. A church not suffering for the gospel is a church with too much time on its hands. 
we have the luxury of being able to argue about things and bicker about things and divide over things that mean nothing in the scope of eternity because we have the time and the ability and the resources to do it. I don't think the North Korean church in general has the same kind of fights that we do. Now the reason this kind of conduct in the face of suffering is worthy of the gospel of Christ is because Christ standing fast in the face of suffering is why there is a gospel in the first place. We are not above our master. Suffering for the sake of the gospel is so integral to the faith and witness of the church that without it, we don't have a witness. It doesn't look like Jesus without suffering for it. Right now, we aren't suffering in America for the sake of the gospel. We're we're inconvenienced, right? And I'm not making light of that. We can be inconvenienced. We grieve because of much of the evil that we see around us and wickedness. Absolutely, right? And and, and there, there are ways in which they marginalize us and poke at us and belittle us and invalidate us. Absolutely, I'm not denying any of that. But it's like we're not in danger right now of government sanctioned Soldiers walking in here right now and shooting all of us. This isn't Ethiopia. That's what's happening there as we speak. Watch it. Watch it. Watch them get mowed down in mass. Watch it. America hasn't gone that way yet. But it is going that way. And beloved, if you don't see that, or you just bank on getting zapped out of here so that you won't have to deal with it, you aren't listening to Scripture. And you aren't being biblically wise. I said what I said. All right? That's part of the self in us that still needs to die. This refusal to believe will suffer like this for the gospel. It threatens unity. It threatens our witness. It was granted to the church in Philippi to suffer. And we now know they were 2,000 years at least away from the second coming. Right? But that, that's, that's not for some church in the future. Well, it is, but it's also for us as we read it right now. It was granted to the church in Philippi to suffer and to the church in Rome and Ephesus and London today and Tokyo and Sydney and St. Petersburg and Reykjavik and Ottawa and Columbus and Pittsburgh and Moundsville. For God's word is not limited. And Hebrews 4.12 says it is. This has been granted to you and to me. Suffering for the sake of the gospel, beloved. That's the kind of suffering this text is talking about. That's been granted to us as the church of Jesus Christ. 
So when we're suffering at the hands of our adversaries, what's happening? The Word of God is being proved true. To them becomes a proof of perdition. To us, a proof of salvation that comes from God. Who apparently is so sovereign, He conducts such things according to His will. Suffering for the gospel has been granted to the church. If we aren't experiencing it, what's wrong? Is God wrong? Is His word untrustworthy? No. I'm sure there are others if if we really think about it, but I want to focus on two reasons very quickly that a church would not be suffering for the gospel. Either we are providentially in a milieu of mercy, which clearly America is, clearly. We're in a very merciful time and, and such that compared to the rest of our brothers and sisters on the earth, for the most part, with very few exceptions, we aren't suffering every day. Like our lives are not literally threatened by the gospel or, or by our adversaries, enemies of the gospel. So that could be why we aren't suffering. And thank God for that. But if we aren't, if a suffering church is expected to thrive for the sake of the gospel, what should we do with the time we've been given in such a milieu of mercy from God? Do you think God would give us that when we are not above any of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world? Do you think He would put us in a time of mercy and allowance from the government to speak the gospel freely? Do you think that we're there to not take advantage of it and just do what we want to do and let our Christianity really be shaped by us? Do any of us really think that's what we should do with the time we've been given? I don't think anybody in here thinks that. We know better than that. We should take massive advantage of it. So that could be one reason. God has providentially placed us in a time of mercy and or we're compromising. So we don't suffer. We're not worth, which sounds really harsh, but I don't mean like you as an individual. I mean, I'm sure it's one of my favorite movie moments of all time. I've probably talked about it. I honestly don't remember, so if I've said it, I'm sorry, but the movie King Arthur with Clive Owen, Anglo-Saxons are sweeping the ring and killing everybody. And King Arthur, with a tiny little force of people behind Hadrian's Wall, says, yeah, we're not backing down. Do your worst. And the Anglo-Saxon king says, finally, a man worth killing. Right? I don't want to suffer. I would like to be a man worth killing. Right? Finally. Conduct that is worthy of the gospel won't happen and is not happening without suffering. So tonight, the law is heavy. What God expects of us and requires of us is heavy and holy and righteous and good. But tonight as we close, inasmuch as we're humble enough to ponder these things just objectively to ourselves, all right, getting real with yourself on the inside, nobody knowing what's in there, just you and God, inasmuch as we are humble enough to ponder these things and examine ourselves, let us look to Christ together. I don't really have any right 
to ask you the hard questions unless I'm going to ask them of myself. Right? Right? Just because I preach these things doesn't think, don't think that I think I don't have any of these things. That there are not areas where I'd like to push for my way at the expense of others. I most certainly do. And I have all kinds of selfishness in me that runs so deep and is so nasty. So together, just once maybe, when we bow our heads tonight, let's talk with our God. Let's talk with Him. We must look to Christ here and now. There's nothing else to do. There's nothing else to do when you get hit by a text like this. He began the work. He is going to complete it in us. So be encouraged when your weaknesses are brought out, when our shortcomings and our sins are brought to the surface. Remember that we also have an advocate with the Father. Let us also remember that in the midst of that, He is working to complete what He started in me. God knows where we're weak. He knows where we're selfish. He knows the games that we are playing. And He's not turning away from us. He's committed to us for the long haul. You're safe just falling back onto Jesus. You're safe. You'll be okay. We'll be okay. We'll be okay. Part of what He's going to complete in us is suffering for the sake of His name. Even when what that will mainly be is death to self, the dying of self every day. That He's working in us as well. That He might increase and we might decrease. That's the goal here. Jesus Christ lived and died and was raised for you. Also for moments like these and weaknesses and sins like these and self-obsession like this. He died for this. He loves you in spite of this. He is committed for all eternity to conforming you to the image of His Son. And it will hurt. And it will happen. Because He has promised to save you. So lean into it with me. If I can. Right? Lean into it. Embrace it. We get 70, 80, 90 years here. Let them be for Christ. You could be 80 years old. You could be 90 years old. Having a beautiful track record of service to God behind you. Well, you're not dead yet, so don't stop now. He is our salvation. So tonight, let us flee to Christ. Don't run from Him now. Don't. If this one has granted to you and I to suffer for His name's sake, and it's every good and perfect gift that comes down from above, it's my mind that needs rewired, not His Word that needs adjusted. He'll receive you with open arms. He's making us like Himself. He's promised it. And He will do it. And everything is going to be okay. Everything.